0: This morning, it seems like we make that, uh, that final turn onto the final approach as we round the end of chapter four of James and into chapter five. And we have really just three more Sundays that will be in our study of the book of James. And as we've gone through this, we've noticed at several points that James has been presenting to us kind of a series of tests. What does a living faith really look like? How does a genuine faith respond to things like trials? How does a genuine faith respond to temptation? How does a genuine faith respond to God's word? How does a genuine faith deal with partiality, good works? Those are the kind of thing. And to, today's message is really just a continuation of that as we look at a genuine faith and how it ultimately is called to trust God in all of life. Now I have to ask this question. Do we have any control freaks in the room this morning? I love it. Yeah, most of those that are they're, they're quick to raise your hand, right, Dave? Yeah. I, 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 and, and even if you didn't raise your hand, and even if you're like, no, I'm not a control freak, we all, to some degree or other, like to be in control, right? Of course we do. Absolutely. We like to control the temperature of our environment. We like to control the people that are around us. We like to control what we eat and when we eat and how we eat and exactly what we eat. I mean, think about all the little things we like to control, you know, the, our relationships, we like to control how people perceive us, how they, you know, whether it's physically, how they see us, or even virtually how they perceive us. There's so many things that we are, we, we like to try and to control. I started thinking about this the other day, even little things. How many of you own one of these smart speakers like a Alexa or a Google one of them? raise your hand. I'm just curious. How many of you have one of those? All right, so those are the kind of things that you can just you can just ask it a question and it answers you, right? But they do a lot more. Uh, they will they will turn lights on and off, right? Talk about control. Sitting in your living room, telling it to turn the lights on or turn the lights off, turn the air conditioner up or down, unlock the door. You know, the list goes on and on of all the things. Just look. I had somebody the other day give me just this most amazing little gift. And it's, this is totally dealing with a first world problem, but it's called the Ember Mug. And it's a black looking coffee mug that comes with an app. (laughs) Wait a minute. This is awesome now because here's the problem. Here's the problem. You're drinking your cup of coffee, your cup of tea, and you get near the bottom and it's not hot anymore. Is it? Well, the Ember, you set the app and it keeps it at the exact temperature you want for the entire cup of coffee. Talk about control, right? And I'm not wasting any of that cold tea or cold coffee at the end. Let's be honest, we love to control things around us. And James is gonna kinda get right in our face this morning and deal with this issue of how much, and and by the way, when we think we're controlling, we're really not in control, are we? No. But we have this desire to be in control. And James is gonna hit this head on in this passage we're looking at this morning. Beginning in chapter four, verse 13. The big idea this morning is instead of trying to be in control, I need to learn to trust God with my future and my finances. And these are two areas of control that he's going to deal with. And these two sections we're looking at today in chapter four and chapter five, that learning to trust God with my future and my finances. So let's start with the first section, trusting God with my future. That's what begins in verse 13. Let's read that passage together, that part of the passage together. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So I hope you have your Bibles open as we follow because we're going to look at this section very closely as we go through this. And we're going to start with the problem. Why don't we trust God more with our future? Why don't we trust God really in all areas of our lives? Well, the first problem we see is this attitude of self-sufficiency. This attitude of self Sufficiency. James gets their attention with the phrase, come now. And he's going to use that uh, both in this passage and the section we look at in chapter five as well. He says, come now. And it's this almost this brash, listen up, pay attention. You need to get what I'm about ready to tell you. And he says, come now, you who say. So he's pulling out a particular group in the congregation that would be hearing this letter read. You who say, and what are they saying? Well, he's speaking specifically to a group of Christian businessmen or women, Christian merchants who are planning out their lives as they probably should be, but they're leaving out God in the process. Notice what they say in verse 13. They have determined both the when, or not both, but the when, the where, how long, the what, the outcome. If they say today or tomorrow, that's the when. We will go to such and such a town, that's the where, and spend a year there, that's how long they're gonna stay. And what are they going to do? They're going to trade. They're going to conduct business and the outcome they want to make a profit. Now there's nothing wrong with planning. In fact, James, I don't even think is attacking their profit motive here. The problem was that they had left God out of their planning completely. And this type of thinking forgets two really important things. And that's what James brings up in chapter 14 for us here. I mean, not chapter verse 14, When he says, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. First thing is, you don't know as much as you think you know. Uh, And boy, can we be guilty of this? Because the reason we try to be in control is because we think we know what needs to be done, right? Most of us have that mode we go into when something goes wrong. All right, let's rush in and see if we can fix this. And James is saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. And what a great reminder COVID 19 has been for all of us that we don't know what will happen tomorrow. A year ago, in fact, it's interesting and ironic somewhat, a year ago to this day, it was March 6th, not 7th, I was preaching. And we knew a little bit about COVID, but we had no idea what was gonna happen over the next 12 months. And we would have thought we could have planned, I mean, we had all kinds of stuff planned, right? Mission trips. (laughs) I love Russell. (laughs) Lots of stuff we had planned. And guess what? This is such a great example of this, that we think we know something. And I I hate to use the word ignorance, but but he's talking about the problem with our thinking is that we're just ignorant. We think we know what tomorrow holds, but we don't. And the second thing is we forget just how frail our lives are. He uses this phrase, what is your life for you are a mist. Uh, Speaking of coffee once again, (laughs) In the morning, I'll set my cup of coffee down there. And early when I first set it down, you know that little bit of steam that'll come off the cup? And it just disappears, right? That's your life. That's my life. That's our life. It's just, it's it's a vapor. It's a mist. And yet we think we have everything planned and we know everything and that we're gonna live forever. I know we don't think we're gonna live forever, but we think we're gonna live at least for tomorrow or the next week or the next month. And James is like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You You got your thinking all wrong. Anytime we have this tendency or desire to try and control our lives, which we all do, we're living without serious reference to God and his plans for our lives. And that's exactly what these merchants were doing. They were, they were, they were acknowledging that there, that, that, that there was a God and that they had put their faith and trust in God, but they were living as if they, there was no God. And we would call this functional or practical atheism. Functional or practical atheism, where we confess to be a follower of Christ, but we live our lives as if there is no God. And we might say, well, I would never do that. But every time we take control, guess what? We're doing that. We're saying, I know better than God. And it's the mantra here. And I put this on the outline. I want to do it my way. I want to do it my way. And I know this is the mantra of our culture, but it can also be the mantra of many Christians that they want to do things their way. That that's how they their their thought process is, I know what needs to be done, and I want to do it my way. Please guard against this desire. Please guard against this tendency to try and control your future. Don't ignore God. Now the next verse, verse 15, we're going to pause on that for a minute. We're going to come back because that is the key verse in this passage, but we're going to continue on into the problem that they they had in their thinking. And we see in verse 16 and 17, their pride and their arrogance. Look at verse 16 with me. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So in spite of their lack of knowledge, despite of their ignorance, despite of their life was but a mist, they continued to boast in their own arrogance. And what James is talking about here is someone that is bragging pretentiously about something that they don't have and they never can obtain. And maybe you know somebody that's like that. Maybe you have a tendency to be a little bit like that. You see, anybody that leaves God out of their planning, that's arrogance, right? That's arrogance. When we leave God out of our planning, we think we know what's best. The reason we want to do it our way is because we believe we know how to do it the best way. I I do it my way because I think I know what is the best way. The height of arrogance The height of arrogance is to leave God out of our plans. That's arrogance. Arrogance isn't just bragging about how good you are or what you did yesterday or how good of a meal you cooked the other day or how fast you were able to walk your five miles. No, arrogance is leaving God out of the equation, believing that you have it. You've got this, I've got this under control. My way is good. Again, this is practical atheism. And in case James's listeners didn't get this, he brings it home in verse 17 because he basically says the same thing in a more general way. Look at verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do, and he's talking to these Christian merchants, you know the right thing to do, to do not to leave God out. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. And so James introduces this new category of sins Sins of omission, we know what we should do, but we don't do it. Sins of commission, or you know, we know that we shouldn't steal, and when we steal, we have committed a sin of commission, but a sin of omission is, okay, I know that I shouldn't leave God out of my plans, but I'm leaving God out of my plans, and so therefore, I'm sinning. And what's interesting about this verse is it has much broader implications than just the context for what James is talking about here, about leaving God out of your plans. I mean, any time that we know what God's word says to do and we don't do it, we've committed a sin, right? Think about the, think about just a few things because you think, well, I don't know if I'm guilty of any sins of omission, maybe commission, but not omission. Wait a minute. Hold on. What about the command to pray for one another? How much have you been praying for your brothers and sisters in Christ recently? How much have you been praying for your family specifically? How much have you been praying for the person that's a, that's a struggle or a challenge in your life? Are we praying like we should be praying? A couple weeks ago, Pastor Russell reminded us of our responsibility as believers with a great commission, that we are to be going and making disciples, that we are to be sharing our faith. It's pretty clear what the Bible says about that. And I think if you are like me, you sat in here and you felt conviction because you realized, wait a minute, I'm not doing that like I need to do that. How are you doing two weeks later? Remember those little cards, those invite cards? That can be a great starting point for sharing your faith. It can be a good pre-evangelism moment. But those are sins of omission. And I started thinking about this one verse right here that I know that I'm guilty of sins of omission all the time. And I, uh, omission all the time. And, and there's a, you know, I just kind of made a little list and I'm not going to share my list with you. But as I realized that, I realized that this one verse alone, I am buried in a sin debt I can never pay, Right? This one verse alone shows me how bad of a sinner I am, that there's nothing I can do good enough to redeem that. That's why I love what what Ryan said earlier about his family worship time. That's the beauty of the gospel. That even though I have this overwhelming sin debt that I can never pay, that I, I deserve nothing but eternity spent in hell, The beauty of the gospel and the beauty of the good news of Jesus Christ is that God in his great love and his great mercy sent Jesus into this world to live a perfect sinless life. And as he lived that perfect sinless life, ultimately leading to the cross where he would lay down his life. And on that cross, just as Ryan said a moment ago, he took on our sin. He took on God's judgment and God's wrath and God's punishment in my place so that I could, in fact, have a relationship with God, both here and forever. If I would only repent of my sin and put my faith and trust in Christ and him alone, that's the good news of the gospel. Amen. And a verse like this in James, where James is reminding us of just how bad of sinners we really are in this area of sins of omission. What's the solution? Let's go back up to verse 15. What's the solution to our desire to try to control our future? Verse 15, he says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Paul understood this truth that we're about ready to talk about. Acts 18, verse 21, Paul says this, but on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. First Corinthians four, nineteen. Paul also says, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. 1 Corinthians 16, 7, Paul says, I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. Even Jesus in the garden, prior to his arrest and crucifixion, what did he say to to, to his heavenly father? Your will be done. Thy will be done. But we have to be careful here. Because James is not talking about some magical words that we say, some superstitious you know, phrase that if we say, if the Lord wills, then that must mean we're good. No, he's talking about a mindset here. He's talking about a mindset, a mindset that, that maybe I've made my plans, but if they don't go the way I have planned them to go, I'm still okay because God's in control. If the Lord wills, I'll do this. How many of you have ever been on, a, on an airplane and as you were on the plane and you taxied out, all of a sudden the, the captain came over the, the loudspeaker and said, uh, I'm sorry, but uh, due to some weather, we're going to have to sit out here on the tarmac for a little while, i.e. one or two hours, uh, and then we'll take off. I mean, the first thing you begin to think of is all the ramifications of this is not going the way I planned. I might miss a connecting flight. I don't want to sit here. I'm going to get claustrophobic. All, all those things are going through your mind. But the person that is resting in the will of God says, okay, I'm going on this trip if the Lord wills. And I'm okay if things don't happen. If my vacation, some of you, maybe I have one, I have some friends that are that actually are fly. I think they, their flight has already left if the Lord willed uh, this morning uh, on their, their, their second anniversary, they were getting away. But you know what? Can you, can you have that kind of mindset that if the Lord wills, I'm going to plan. Again, James is not getting on them for planning. He's getting on them for leaving God out of their plans. And it's that mindset. And it really goes back to the understanding that God is sovereign in control anyway, right? That, and he said, and look at what he says in that verse. He says, if the Lord lives, we will live. He starts with God has the, has the, has the sovereign power whether I live or die today. Am I going to be alive tomorrow or dead? That's that's in God's hands, not mine. I can eat healthy. I can can be safe. I can do all the things that I should do, but that's ultimately in God's hands. And that's that's where we need to be here is we need to be at this point where we understand God's sovereignty and we're putting God at the center part of all of our plans, affirming his sovereignty in all aspects of our life. Are you able to genuinely say the phrase, if the Lord wills, about your day-to-day, about your plans for today? Can you say that about your struggles? Can you say that about your circumstances? Can you acknowledge God's will in all areas of your life? Now, that's section one, trusting God with my future. What's going to happen? Section two, trusting God with my finances, beginning in chapter five, verse one. Let's read that section together now. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person, and he does not resist you. So we're going to look at the judgment that James is bringing here, and specifically in verse 1, these miseries that he's talking about. And can you tell a little bit of a change in tone in James here? (laughs) It's, It's pretty drastic, to be honest with you. I mean, he kind of goes old school, Old Testament prophet here. As he's dealing with a different group of people. That first group of people he was dealing with are people that would confess that they believe in God, but they had just left God out of their lives. Now he's dealing with a group of people that they don't believe in God really. They they have put their, well, they might profess that, but essentially their lives have demonstrated that they have put their trust in another God, little G God. And that's going to be their wealth, their material possessions, and their finances. And so that's, where James, that's the group James is now dealing with when he says, come now, you rich. Now, the very first thing that kind of stands out to me in this, this, this warning or this judgment to this group of people is he says that they need to weep and howl. You better weep and howl. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, weep means to sob out loud. It's this... This, uh, this, this uh, lamenting when someone perhaps has died. The howling goes beyond just mere lamenting. And it's this, this shrieking or screaming. And so you put these things together and you've got a pretty, pretty descriptive, vivid picture of, of somebody that's going through a lot of not just emotional, but probably physical pain as well. It's very much like what we would see the Old Testament prophets describing such wailing over the effects of sin. Why should they do that? Well, look what he says in verse one after that. He says, for the miseries that are coming upon you. He's describing here an overwhelming hardship, trouble, suffering, or distress that will be visited upon the wicked rich when they stand before the Lord in judgment. So this is a warning or really a judgment that is true for all who put their trust in material possessions. The first group had just left God out of the equation and we have that tendency to do that a lot ourselves. This group, they had put their trust in something other than the one true God. They were trusting in their possessions, in their material wealth, in their riches. And so James says, you better get ready. You better get ready for what is coming. These words suggest a very forgotten truth that wealth is really not an advantage, especially when it comes to spiritual things. In fact, it is probably more of a spiritual handicap than anything else. Toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter six, verse 24, Jesus says this, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And these people were serving their money. Jesus' point here is impossible to trust in your riches, for anybody that trusts in their riches to get into heaven. You see, material possessions and focusing on those things will tend to make our whole mindset focus on worldly things. And you've probably heard the phrase that if you're not careful, your possessions will ultimately possess you. Have you ever heard that? That your possessions will possess you. And that's what we're gonna see as he describes the sin that has led up to this judgment he's talking about in verse one. So let's look at their four sins that came before that severe judgment of the wicked rich. And by the way, he's not saying that being rich is is sinful in and of itself. Remember, it's not the money that's the sin. It's the what? love of the money. And that's where these people were in focusing on that. And we'll see that it comes, it just gets really clear as we look at these verses. Verses two through three. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. And we'll come back and look at those three things in just a second. And their corrosion will be evidence against you. Talking about that judgment and the miseries. And will eat your flesh like fire. That's Old Testament prophet right there, right? Will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up your treasures here in the last days, but not for the future. I'm calling this the, 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 the hoarders. These are the hoarders. Maybe a better word would be accumulators because hoarding for a lot of us, we have that image of, uh, of that TV show, right? The hoarders. And so you, you see somebody sitting in a chair in a living room and, and they can't even stand up because it's just full of stuff. Or you see someone's kitchen and you can't even tell it's a kitchen because there's so much stuff. That's really not what James is talking about. He's talking about people that have a lot of wealth and they have so much wealth that it's not being used. It's just they have so much. They have so much food that it's rotten. Their clothes, and clothes were, were, were a status symbol back in James's day, just as it is today. But they had so many clothes stashed away that the moss were eating them. Their clothes had become food for the moss. And then he talks about the gold and silver being corroded. Now James knew that gold and silver can't be corroded. He's speaking more in the language of wisdom literature here, talking about it's not going to last forever that none of this stuff is going to last forever. And, and it's sad that they had all this food when people were hungry. They had all these clothes when people needed clothes. They were accumulating and accumulating and accumulating. And it wasn't doing them any good. But that's kind of what happens when you start focusing on material possessions. And as James was addressing this group, there might've been some of those in the church that, were, that they claimed the name of Christ, but they were following the God of things. But James also wanted the Christians to hear this because he knew that every one of us has this tendency To want to get more stuff right just like we like to be in control we like we have this tendency or desire to want to have more stuff i said earlier on why does god bless us with material possessions so that we can be a blessing to others so that we can be a blessing to others god blesses us with things and i love seeing people that that god has blessed them immensely and their first thought is how can i bless someone else Let's say you all of a sudden at work or where you live, they, you won or in a, in a drawing a $100 Visa card, gift card, a $100 Visa gift card, and you got that. Is your first thought, oh man, what can I get that I've really been wanting? Or is your first thought, how can I be a blessing to somebody with this gift card? I just heard about somebody that was struggling with, with not being able to get groceries right now. Man, I can't wait to give them this card. A lot of that comes back to that mindset of, are we focused on our stuff or are we trying to see how God can use us with what he's given us to bless other people. Jesus was very, very clear about this. And he's actually, James is using Jesus' words perhaps consciously here in Matthew chapter six, verse 19 through 21, when he says, Jesus says these words, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where are you placing your trust in today? The second thing we see that they're doing, and this is a spiral progression downward in this sin. They started with the, with the desire just to accumulate more and more stuff. But now we see the fraud that they're committing in verse four. He says, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. The the wicked rich were not only guilty of hoarding and accumulating a bunch of stuff, but they were also cheating the people that worked for them. You see, day labor was was a very integral part of the agrarian economy in James's day in Israel. And a day laborer was somebody that went to work for somebody and they worked that day, perhaps in the harvest field or doing whatever. At the end of that day, they got paid for their their work. And what was happening here is James is saying these people that, that have this money would hire these people to come work for them, but at the end of the day, they wouldn't pay them. Why was that such a bad thing? Well, probably the money they were gonna get paid that day was gonna be what bought them that food they were gonna eat that night. And if they didn't get paid, they might not eat. If they didn't get paid, they might not have food for their family or clothes for their family. And so they were cheating the people. And it's again, they had all these resources, but yet they wanted more. So they thought, oh, I don't have to pay them. I'll come up with some excuse not to pay them. And so they were committing this fraud. A frightening judgment awaits those who rob from the poor. The third thing we see in verse five is their self-indulgence. Look what it says. You've lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Now, again, there's nothing per se wrong with luxury, but when it's luxury for luxury self, and, 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 and also when you're doing the things of defrauding those people around you, it becomes a self indulgent desire to get more and more and more and more for yourself. Remember the downward spiral. They started accumulating. Now they're cheating those that work for them. And now they're do, willing to do whatever they can to have more stuff just for them. And I love the vivid language James looks, or uses here in this verse when he says that you are the fatten. you have fattened your hearts. You've fattened your hearts. You've gotten all that you want now, but where are they headed? Just as a, a fattened calf, they are headed for the slaughterhouse of divine judgment with their fattened hearts and ultimately in that downward spiral, it leads to murder. Verse six, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. They would literally kill to maintain their opulent lifestyle. the implication here is that the wicked rich were using the courts to judicially murder some of the abused poor. How low can you go? But that's what greed does. That's what that desire to control and idolize your finances. What happens is it's that downward, downward spiral further and further and further. This group had made their finances their idol, their God. And they one day were going to face God's righteous judgment. And it wasn't going to be pretty. They were gonna have those miseries that James describes in verse one that were gonna come upon them. And there would be a lot of weeping and wailing and howling and screeching in that day of judgment. And while James was primarily in this section addressing those outside of Christ, he wanted every believer to hear these words as a reminder because listen, we all have a tendency to try to desire and control material possessions in our life. And our culture doesn't help, does it? Our culture makes it like you, you need these things. You can't live without these things. You need a coffee cup that'll keep your coffee at exact temperature for you, right? We have the messages. If you watch any media or read any media, the commercials, the ads are telling you what you need to make your life better, to make your life easier. And we all have that tendency to buy into that. Oh yeah, I didn't know I needed that. Yeah, I better get that. Some of you are already looking up online that, the Ember mug, I know. Right, right? Forget that, go to Ramsey Plus and get that instead, right? (laughs) That'll help you out a whole lot better. We gotta be careful not to let our desires control both our future and our finances. I I put the big idea again at the end, just as a reminder, that we need to, the antidote to letting our desires focus on controlling our future and our finances is to trust God with our lives, with our future, and our finances. By the way, when we don't trust God, based on what we just read, we're sinning. It's evil. We need to trust God. And 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 ultimately the reason it's it should be easy for us as believers to trust God is God's in control, isn't he?